0: Please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're returning to Colossians. It's been a couple of weeks. We had Pete Griasley with us last week. Many of you will have uh, really enjoyed and benefited and been blessed by the message he brought us uh, from Luke. Um, but back in Colossians this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 11 of chapter 3. So please do find that in your Bible. And the, um, the title I've given to this morning's message is Going to War with Our Sin. Going to War with Our Sin. Um, and I've, I've given Nick, I haven't talked to Nick this morning really, but I've given Nick a bunch of slides to work us through this morning. So I apologise in advance, Nick. There's quite a few, but hopefully it will help us so, um, as we work through this. But the title of this morning's message, Going to War with Our Sin. And uh, let's read from uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 just to remind us of where we've been recently. seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Sibian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, we've seen in recent weeks Paul talking to the Colossians about the idea of true spirituality, of Christian fullness. There was in the Colossians a deep desire to live a genuine and full Christian life, to enjoy a full spirituality. And that desire in them is a good one. It's a good desire for us to have. But Paul wanted them to know where true spiritual fullness is really to be found because he knew that the world outside is full of counterfeits, and sometimes those counterfeits can even make their way inside of the church. So back in chapter 2, he warned them against the many enticing and yet empty forms of spirituality that were held out to them in things like legalism and mysticism and asceticism. True spiritual fullness, he keeps on reminding them, is found in Christ and Christ alone. The Christian life, he says, begins with receiving Jesus and then simply continuing to walk in him, rooted and built up in him. But the thing Paul hasn't really shown us yet is what does this look like in practice? If it doesn't look anything like obsessive rule-keeping or pseudo-spiritual experience chasing or rigid, painful self-denial, then what does true spirituality look like day to day? It's that question that Paul sets out now to answer in chapters 3 and 4. And it begins, as we saw last time in Colossians, with a whole new focus and perspective. We're setting our minds on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It begins with setting our minds on Christ. Because already our life is hidden with him. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't, it doesn't start and end in our minds. As if being a Christian is only about what goes on in our thinking and nothing more. No, as we're now going to see as we continue through these final two chapters, our new Christ-centered mindset is meant to flow out into a whole new way of living and behaving. And that new way of living and behaving begins in our passage this morning with putting away those things that characterized our old life before we met Christ. It begins with going to war against our remaining sin. Next week we're going to hear more about the new behaviours that we're to put on and pursue. But today the focus is very much on the sin still present in us that is to be resisted and put away. Uh, Now it seems to me that our passage answers three helpful and important questions about this war with sin. And they're quite simply why, where and how. So that's our three headings points for this morning. We're going to look at why, where and how. First of all, why go to war with our sin? Why go to war with our sin? Paul gives us two important reasons. The first is because we've already died. Now, here perhaps is, I think, maybe the most important thing for us to grasp this morning, right at the outset, that the command to Christians to put our sin to death follows our having died with Christ. It follows it rather than preceding it. So verse 3, he says, you have died. Verse 5, therefore put sin to death. And then verses 7 and 8, you were living in sin, now you're not, and so put these sins away. Paul here only gives the command to go out and go to war with our sin to those who have already died to sin by putting their faith in Jesus. These verses are not salvation by works kind of slipping back in through the back door. Paul is not here preaching righteousness by works. The very thing that he was condemning so passionately in chapter 2. We absolutely, categorically cannot save ourselves from sin's penalty and power. No matter how many good deeds we perform or how many bad deeds we resist, we simply cannot earn a right standing before a holy God. But Christ can. Christ died in Place of sinners, bearing the deadly penalty that we deserved, so that all who put their faith in him instead of themselves can in that very first millisecond that we believe be united with him in his death, freeing us forever from sin's penalty and power. Now, what this means is if you're not yet a Christian and you're here this morning, it is futile to try and reform your life and Rescue yourself. Christianity has nothing to do with turning over a new leaf, doing better or trying harder. It is about realizing that you simply won't and can't. And then throwing ourselves on the mercy of God instead. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. It is futile to go to war with our sin unless we first died to it once and for all by placing our trust in Jesus but once we've done that once we've placed our trust in the saving work of Christ and once we're saved once we're Christians well then the need to go to war with our sin actually makes perfect sense and that's Paul's point here in these verses Paul's point here is that the old way of life that we used to live doesn't fit with us anymore it doesn't fit with who we are anymore Sin is no longer our master. We've been set free. We're no longer rebels at war with God. If in Christ we've died to sin, if our old self has died, why would we want to go digging around in its grave? Why would we want to go back and get comfy wearing a corpse? Especially when not only have we already died with Christ, but we've also been raised to a completely new life in Christ. And that's the second reason why now we go to war against our sin. That's the second of the two reasons he gives as to why we go to war. Because we have already been raised. Verse 1, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Verse 10, you have already put on the new self. Therefore, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Again, it's not that we give ourselves new life by going to war with our sin. We go to war with our sin precisely because we've already been raised to new life. We are new creations in Christ. We may not feel like it, especially when our our, our persistent remaining sin weighs us down. But we are new creations in Christ. God tells us the old has gone and the new has come. And now our call is simply to be in practice what we have already become in Christ. And then in verse 10, Paul tells us exactly what that is. Verse 10, we have, notice it's in the past tense, we have put on the new self, which is, present tense, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I really love here how Paul doesn't leave the Colossians and all of us guessing as to what this new self is for and about. Just the very idea of having put on a new self, it sounds amazing and it sounds intriguing, but I suspect there were some people in the Colossian church who'd like to maintain an air of mystery about exactly what that new self might mean. But not Paul, no. Paul's going to tell them exactly what it means to have put on the new self, to have been raised with Christ. He tells us it means the start of a divine restoration project. Okay, so this is like Grand Designs now this morning, if you've watched Grand Designs. A divine restoration project. A restoration project with the most glorious goal in mind, restoring in us the very purpose for which we as human beings were first created. It's like God has come along and tossed a gasping, dying, dead fish there lying on the beach back into the ocean, giving it new life in the place that it really belongs. God is renewing His image in us. He has begun a work in us to make us more and more into the likeness of His Son. That wonderful uh, a few verses in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 he tells us he's working all things for our good in order to conform us to the image of his son that is god's plan for us that is what he's doing restoring the likeness in us that adam's sin and our sin once cataclysmically defaced and distorted and ruined that is the goal of our salvation That is the incredible future destiny that lies ahead of every single Christian. When we see Christ, we shall be like him. But even now, that work of God has begun. And that, of course, is why it makes perfect sense to now go to war against the remaining sin in our lives. Now is the time to set about killing our sin because Welcoming and making peace with it denies and ignores and and obscures the reality of what God has done for us and is doing in us. Picture it perhaps like a house, maybe picture Grand Designs. Picture a house that was once condemned and I think we've got a picture, there we go, it's the before and after. Picture a house like this, our lives were once like a grand old house given over to rack and ruin with rotten timbers and rotten foundations and in the possession of a highly destructive landowner. In that state, in that old state, it would come as no surprise to walk into that ruined house and find it filled with piles of rubbish and rotting heirlooms, filth and grime in every room, a stain and a stench in every corner. Such contents, though nasty, would have seemed quite fitting and appropriate for so ruined and condemned a dwelling. But imagine then that someone comes in out of nowhere, comes in to buy up that ruin at their own great expense. And maybe as we see it happening, we would assume maybe, yeah, they're planning on, they're going to knock it down. They're going to demolish it. They're going to build a whole different house in its place. But no. Incredibly, they tell us they've come not to demolish it, but to lovingly restore it and rebuild it and renew it to rebuild it from the foundations up to restore it to the glory and the grandeur of its maker's original design to make it a beautiful radiant life-giving and welcoming home a work of architectural beauty and brilliance once again and that's what they do and it looks magnificent But imagine then, if immediately after the rebuild, how wrong it would be, how incongruous it would be for the tenant to offer a bit of thanks and then proceed to unpack from the skips and the rubbish bins all the old filth and the rubbish that used to litter the floors and stain the walls of that old home. That rotting trash that looked at least at home in the ruined house would look completely out of place and shocking in the renewed one. And it wouldn't be, in fact, that... Pouring a lorry load of rubbish back into that, that restored house would immediately undo the restoration work, but it would certainly obscure that great work of redemption. And it would stand in the way of making this new home a trophy and a showcase of its great Redeemer's work. So just imagine Kevin MacLeod, if you if you know Grand Designs, returning to view a home at the end of a, an episode of Grand Designs only to find the owners have filled it with trash. We are no longer our own. We were bought with a price. God paid our ransom with Christ's blood. He has redeemed us from our old, rotten, decaying, and godless way of life in order to raise us to new life. He has restored us. He is renewing us he has brought us to a place where we can begin to fulfill our true purpose, to bear his image more and more, and so increasingly reflect his glory. That's why now, today, is the time to go to war with our sin. Now is the time to keep putting off those old rags that we once called clothes, to be repeatedly putting those old sins to death, because they, they just don't suit us anymore. They're no longer in keeping with what God has so mercifully done for us and what he is mightily doing in us. That's the answer to the question of why. The second question our passage answers this morning is where? Where should we go to war with our sin? You probably noticed as we were reading through a, a couple of, at least a couple of lists of sins. Now Paul here isn't providing us with an exhaustive list of all the sins we might wrestle with and struggle with and commit. But he gives us two sample lists, two hit lists, if you like, that touch on some of the most commonly besetting sins that we battle with and which we ought to be continually striving to put to death. The first hit list is in verse 5, and it addresses us, particularly in our personal life, The second hit list in verses 8 and 9 focuses more on our shared life together in the church. So let's just look at each of those lists in turn. First of all, a hit list for our personal life. Here in this first list, uh, Paul takes us on something of a journey from the outward practice of sin to the dark innermost cravings of our hearts. And so he begins on the outside with sexual immorality or porneia which refers to every kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage, be it prostitution or premarital sex or extramarital sex and all other forms of non-marital sexual activity. And this, of course, isn't because God is against sex. No, God is really for sex. He created it. He designed it to be a, a very good gift, but a gift to be used in a very special context to be enjoyed exclusively between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage has no place in a believer's life. First Thessalonians 4 verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then Paul takes us to impurity. That's the second word. And this word impurity takes us beyond that act of immorality to the unclean thoughts and intentions of the mind that lie behind it and often precede it. It's what Jesus describes in Matthew 5:28 when he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Next we have passion and evil desire. And I think those two kind of couple together. And sadly, the passion here is not the good kind, but the selfish, lustful kind. And it's a passion and a lust, not just for sex, but for every kind of shameful excess. It's it's like the engine that drives all of our impure thoughts and immoral behavior. This passion and evil desire that Paul talks of here is the opposite, the polar opposite of love. Love gives to others, lust and evil desire takes for itself. Mark Maynell writes, lust is all about me, me, me and my self-gratification and is not ultimately concerned with the welfare of the object of that lust. And then diving deeper still into the darkest depths and recesses of our hearts Paul tells us what lies behind all these other things he takes us to the sin's innermost springs covetousness which is idolatry Uh, now covetousness is 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 kind of really another word for greed it is that insatiable desire to have more and more especially of that which has been forbidden Covetousness assumes that everyone around us exists for our good, for our benefit. Be it other people's attention or other people's bodies or other people's possessions. And the enslaving power of covetousness, is it, the reason it's so enslaving is the fact that it is always greedy for more. It's never satisfied. The more you feed it, the more its dark cravings grow. It's, it, it's like drinking seawater, salt water. It only makes you more and more thirsty and eventually it drives you insane. And worst of all, Paul tells us here, covetousness is really, at its root, idolatry. It is the exact opposite of trusting, treasuring and worshipping God. It, it puts ourselves in the place of God. As if we created and owned all things. Even though we know that Colossians 1.16 told us, all things were created through him and for him. But we live like, when we're caught up in idolatry, we live like all things exist for ourselves. And so as a Tennessee farmer once said, seems as, uh, I think farmers have a lot of wisdom, and this is certainly good, what comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. What comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. Meaning that whenever we see sexual immorality, impurity and evil desires springing up in our lives. And I'm sure we do. I do. In me. Whenever we see those things, there is undoubtedly covetousness and idolatry deep down in the well of our hearts. Now again, those things, that that idolatry used to be quite welcome and at home in us, in our hearts, in our old, dead and sin-ruined hearts. But now... It's an unwelcome squatter. It's an imposter in our new hearts. It simply doesn't belong there anymore. It no longer fits with our new self. It no longer complements that restoration work that God is doing in us. And so we must go to war with idolatry and all of its fruits that are listed here by Paul and all of its other fruits as well. Wherever we find them lurking in us, we must resist them and starve them and evict them as much as possible from our hearts every moment of every day. That's the focus of Paul's first hit list for our personal lives in verse 5. But there's another hit list he wants us to pay attention to alongside it as well, and that's a hit list for our life together. Verses 8 and 9. He says, verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And then on to verse 11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now I think the first thing this shows us is that how we treat each other And particularly how we speak to each other as Christians is just as important as how we deal with our own personal, more private sins. In fact, the sins that Paul lists here are in many ways just another form of idolatry because they again obscure the grace and the glory of God. But this time they do it not just in our individual lives, but in our shared life in the church as well. Verse 11 reminds us Christ reigns supreme in his church. He's broken down all of the walls of human division that might naturally divide us because he intends for our new life together to be on full display in our relationships with each other. He intends for his saving work to be displayed in the way that we treat one another and speak to one another. And again, I think it's helpful for us just to take a little bit of time to examine and define each of these terms in verse 8. I I really believe that identifying sins by their proper name is often the first step in finding that resolve to actually go to war with them. As someone once said, it is far easier to drift into a sin that one does not know by name than consciously to choose one whose very title should be repulsive to the Christian. And it's worth noticing as well, as we go through this second list, that Paul's kind of reversed the pattern from the first one. Uh, this time, he starts with the root of the sin in our hearts, and then he moves outwards to our resulting behavior. He begins with anger. Sinful anger is a slow, seething, smoldering attitude of selfish hostility that just boils away below the surface in our hearts. One writer compares it to sap in a tree on a hot day that, that swells the trunk and the branches until they're in danger of bursting. The problem with anger is that once we allow it to uh, camp out in our hearts unopposed, it's only a matter of time before it erupts. We often tell ourselves that other people provoke us to anger. Parents, you especially know what I'm talking about. But the truth is no one can make us angry. They only reveal the anger that was already there inside. And when that anger does boil over and erupt, it produces, secondly, wrath. And this is sadly not the righteous, settled, measured wrath that God justly shows towards sin. No, what Paul is describing here is is an outburst of bad-tempered, unholy rage. It's like a volcano spewing forth red-hot lava that carries destruction in its wake. Next he mentions malice, which is the deliberate intention to harm or hurt someone else. It plans and carries out evil against another person and then it even revels in the misery it causes. Think about Haman's delight and pleasure as he built the gallows for Mordecai in Esther 5. He was full of malice, full of a desire to hurt Mordecai. Then Paul mentions slander, which is speech directed against someone with the intention of insulting them or defaming their character and that's whether it's said to their face or behind their backs. Sometimes slander can come in vicious outbursts, but other times, and I think even more often, it just kind of oozes out of us. It kind of seeps through our pores. It oozes out gently as we just take little pot shots, offer little critiques at other people. And maybe we just laugh it off as unintended or innocent fun. And then there's obscene talk. And this, this, this... term includes abusive speech intended to wound and hurt people and it includes obscene language that has the effect of polluting and corrupting those who are listening Ephesians 5 verse 4 makes clear that all such speech and language is completely out of place on the lips of a believer Mark Maynell writes the human mouth is like one of those effluent pipes that can still be found in many parts of the world All the refuse and sewage from a town is brought together and pumped, untreated, out to sea, as if that will make the problem just go away. But the consequences of this, he says, of this pollution can be devastating and far-reaching. Cruel or malignant words are like that effluent. We might dismiss their weight with crass lines like, I I didn't really mean it. I was only joking. But our words have revealed total disrespect for the person to whom... Or about whom we are talking. With the tongue, writes the Apostle James in James 3: with the tongue we bless the Lord our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Finally, Paul says: do not lie to one another. Lying is an especially deadly sin, especially deadly to leave unaddressed in a church because it inevitably ruins trust and so destroys unity. That's why God struck down Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, not because they lacked generosity, but because of their deceit and hypocrisy. The problem is, telling the truth is often inconvenient and untidy and embarrassing And we are constantly tempted to, I'm constantly tempted to bend it into a less awkward shape in order to make ourselves look better or make our lives easier. As a US senator once said, and these guys aren't as wise as farmers, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord, but a very present help in trouble. But no, believers must strive to tell the truth, even when in trouble. Lies were natural to the old self, When we were following the father of all lies, Satan, that's his his thing, his trademark, lies. But lies simply don't suit us any longer now that we have put off the old self with its practices. The God of all truth is our father now. And he's even now at work in us to renew us in his truth-filled image. So let's be asking ourselves, am I careless with my speech? Am I falling back into old habits? Have I been failing to label those old habits the way God would label them? We can make a lot of excuses for our ungodly behavior towards others, especially in our speech. We might say, I'm just being honest about how I feel. I have a duty to share everything, at least with my wife. Well, that person really is annoying. I'm not blowing it out of proportion. They're really that grating. Or we might say it's not healthy to keep things bottled up. I've just got to let it out. But God says such behavior and speech is malicious, slanderous, obscene and wholly inappropriate amongst those who have already put off the old self and have put on the new self through dying and rising with Jesus. We ought then to be actively at work in killing these sins again and again in us wherever and whenever we see them. Okay, final question for this morning. It's the how question. How do we go to war with our sin? How do we do this? How do we as Christians, as those who have already been, again, saved already from sin's penalty and power, yet as those still so susceptible to its enticing lure, how do we set about daily putting our sin to death? Well, I'm not going to spend a long time here this morning, but our passage does have a few important things to say in answering this question for us, and then I think we're going to see more as we go on in Colossians as well. I don't want to be completely open with you at this point. I would dearly love to present to you now a profound and revolutionary solution for truly putting our remaining sin to death once and for all. I would love to find that solution for myself. As I I was preparing, particularly this this final point this week, it just weighed on me that where is the solution? Why, Why am I failing so much in these things? The reality is I so often feel beaten down and held hostage by the power that sin still seems to have over me. And as I read through Paul's two hit lists of sins here, that we ought to go to war against in our own lives. I feel like he is painting targets all over my heart. It's just like that moment in a movie where one of the characters thinks he's, he's, he's escaped unscathed and then he looks down and he's covered in all those laser sights and there are snipers all around. Covetous thoughts and unwholesome desires and angry murmurings and impatient outbursts. It seems however much I throw into resisting them one moment, they still come back to entice my heart and my tongue and my body the next. So that's me. I suspect that's you. What wisdom does Paul have to give us here in this passage for understanding how we can persevere in this very real and very wearying battle with sin? Well, there's three things I think in particular just to touch on briefly. And they should come up on the screen one by one. First of all, we see we're called to a lifelong assault against sin rather than a once-for-all decisive act. There is no single death blow that will outright kill a besetting sin in our lives. Paul's language of killing sin here is not the language of execution. It is the language of atrophy, of cutting off sin's oxygen supply bit by bit, of literally getting our hands around sin's neck maybe a particular sin's neck, and choking it day after day after day so that it might begin to shrivel up and die. The Christian is called to a lifetime of battling and burying sins. As John Owen once says, and we've got a picture for this one. That's actually his quote in the bottom corner, but I think the picture captures it so well as well. As John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you Even when it's often, I'm adding this, even when it's often the same sins that rise again from the grave to assault us the next day. And the fact that the battle might be intensely grueling for you and I right now, the fact that we might have to battle certain besetting sins all of our lives, shouldn't in any way shake our assurance that we are saved. On the contrary, before Christ saved us, before we were Christians, we weren't fighting. Before Christ saved us, we were at peace with our sin. We were content with our rebellion against God. We were dead in our sins. But the day that Christ raised us and saved us, that's the day we switched sides, and that's the day the battle began with our old slave master sin. Dead men don't put up a fight, but those who have been raised begin to. The second thing we see here is that the primary battleground for warring against sin is in the believer's heart. There there is a superficial way to fight sin that only seeks to restrict or curtail certain behavior. We might put up all sorts of barriers and fences in our life. Now, there is, of course, wisdom in erecting certain fences that reduce our exposure to serious temptations, maybe especially in areas where we just know we are... uh, particularly susceptible and weak, susceptible to certain temptations. So the barriers can be good. But as Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 21, outward restrictions are of no value by themselves in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's like weeding your garden week after week after week, but only ever pulling off the leaves. And I was weeding my garden yesterday with the lawnmower, which is the worst way to do it. And I was lamenting, why have the weeds come back so quickly? And it's because I always mow them with the mower. I'm just hacking at the leaves. It's no use if you don't attack the root as well. And the root of every sin we've seen is ultimately idolatry in our hearts. It is the the polar opposite of loving and worshipping God. So, what's the best weed killer for pouring liberally onto that root of idolatry that's in our hearts? It's chapter 3, verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Even the big end-of-level boss that is idolatry gets put into a stranglehold. It gets slowly suffocated when we set our mind on things above, seeking life and peace and joy in Christ. God has given us in Christ a powerful, all-satisfying alternative to every idol that might threaten to take over our hearts. And the way to war against the idols of our heart is to set our minds and our hearts continually, repeatedly on Christ who is our life. Thirdly and finally, we see here that no battle with sin in a Christian's life can ever threaten their union with Christ. There's a very important reason that this call to arms comes in chapter 3 and not in chapter 1. There's a very important reason why none of Paul's New Testament letters start with instructions on battling sin. It's because salvation is all of grace and nothing of works. It's because this battle with sin only begins after we have died and risen to new life in Christ. After we are destined never to die again. It's because the God who is at work in us now, renewing us day by day into his likeness, is the same God who has already Chapter 1, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, sins past and present and future. Nothing, not even our battles with the deepest, darkest sins that reside in our hearts can ever separate us from God's protection and his salvation and his love. And with that sure and certain confidence, we can take up arms again and again and humbly go to war each day with our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us a message of help and hope through your word this morning. We thank you that through simple faith in Christ, the moment we first believed, we died and were raised with him. Father, we thank you that today every single believer can stand assured our sins are forgiven and nothing can ever wrench us from your grasp. Oh Lord, we, do, we fully acknowledge that the battle with our sin is a hard and gruelling one. And so often, Lord, we fall and we fail. But How grateful we are to be reminded this morning that we don't go to war with our sin in order to save ourselves in order to be saved and secure. No, we go to war with our sin because we are already saved and secure forever. Father, please give us grace again today and tomorrow and the next day to go on putting our sin to death and to go on fixing our hearts and minds on our glorious Saviour, Christ.